The Army is bringing the concepts that make up zero trust to the tactical edge. That's not so easy. The tactical environment includes operational technology, weapon systems, and typical IT systems. They've all got to work in an intermittent, disconnected, or simply low-bandwidth environment. For insight on the first steps to bring robust cyber capabilities to the edge, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke to the director of the Army's Functional Management Office for Zero Trust and director of the Unified Network Task Force, Colonel Michael Smith. We have to leverage what we can from the enterprise and develop add-on solutions uh, for a tactical environment that achieves the same outcomes within the enterprise. So challenging, we've completed our enterprise gap analysis. We are currently working on our tactical edge zero trust gap analysis. We do not have 12 to 18 months to do do this analysis, so we're going to perform this in a very deliberate uh, manner, but very expeditiously, and hopefully within a couple months we will have a very good product that is very definitive on where we need to apply some resources within the tactical space. How much can you beg, borrow, steal from the enterprise gap analysis than you can apply to tactical? Or are they, it's like apples and oranges, they're maybe both fruit, but they're not similar in the least bit? Yeah, I think you're right. I think what we're leveraging from the enterprise gap analysis is really just the methodology. We're going to apply that same methodology, and it's really just aligning the pillars and the capabilities with the existing capabilities uh, in our infrastructure, and then developing a construct where we're doing analysis of alternatives to divest of specific technologies and or invest or partner with other academic industries, sister service, et cetera. So it's the methodology that's important that we can apply across the rest of our gaps across our architecture. One thing about cybersecurity is you're never at zero, you're never at 100, you're always, always in the middle. And I think that's why this gap analysis is so important. What is the added complexity when you talk about the tactical side? Weapon systems, operational technology, mission partner environments, and the, and the like. What's the additional challenge you have there? I previously spoke to what the Army is currently working on, and that's specifically enterprise, nipper, and sipper. We're leaning into the tactical edge now, and we're also working with organizational networks, uh, which are really bifurcated, isolated networks from the DOTA But to your point, weapon systems, control systems, uh, mission partner environment, that is the challenge. Uh, A lot of those technologies are legacy, for example, control systems, and they do not touch the the Army's portion of the Doden network. Uh, So we have to figure out how to apply zero trust principles against their existing capabilities and or identify any gaps that, that we may apply some other policy-type things to, to achieve the same outcomes. But there are a lot of instances for control systems, operational technology, ICS data, that we do not want to include within our enterprise zero-trust architecture because we may cause some significant damage to some systems. Especially when you talk about control systems, operational technology, those, uh, you mentioned HVAC systems as a perfect example, those were built in a way that are very, not not necessarily cyber-friendly, meaning they weren't built with cyber in mind. This is definitely one of those bolt-on, not built-in type of occasions. When you walk through the gap analysis, are you taking, if you will, a, because of the time constraints you, you face, are you taking a, the methodology is we'll look at a, a portion of the control systems, a portion of the weapon systems, and use that as a kind of a, the broader understanding of, okay, here's 
generally speaking, what we need to think about for these types of systems going forward for zero trust, or how, how is the gap analysis happening? Because as you said, you don't have a ton of time. Yeah, I think you're absolutely uh, right in uh, your thought process. So we're going to take a look at a subset of weapon systems and a subset of control systems and identify kind of the, the, the basic architecture that applies to those, those uh, components. Once we identify that, we identify the gaps, we'll push that guidance out to the larger commands that house those control systems and or weapon systems. And it will be up to them to really apply the zero trust principles in, in that fashion. But due to time, as you mentioned, it'll just be a subset. Just looking over the next 12 to 18 months, you want to get that gap analysis done in the next few months. What are the next steps from there? Do you expect a, lack of a better word, zero trust strategy for tactical systems? Or what do you think is going to come from this gap analysis beyond ways to improve <laughs> these systems? I think the best way to put this is uh, zero trust is a journey. Uh, we're never going to be at 100%. We're never going to have a 100% zero trust architecture. It's going to be a continuous process. Even beyond 2027, things are going to evolve. Adversary threats going to evolve. And the key to the gap analysis is really divestment of capability that doesn't meet zero trust principles uh, and or investment of capability. Uh, so that's what we're looking to do. So to get to that, we have to figure out where the resources are at. So we're going to need to align resources if we have to invest in new technologies. Uh, that's been the challenge on the enterprise side, and that'll be the challenge in the tactical space as we move into it. We are so embedded with systems that have been applied over the last five to ten years. They're very difficult to take out of the architecture and place something new in because they're already integrated. So to integrate a new solution is going to take time. Uh, but it's really applying the resources that can fund those and sustain those over time. When we talk about zero trust, almost everyone I hear you know, always wants to begin with identity access and credential management, ICAM. One of the things you mentioned here at Thames is this challenge of applying ICAM capabilities to certain tactical environments, specifically maybe weapon systems, specifically at the edge. What's the thinking now? How are you starting to pilot, do research? Where are you at with trying to solve this complex problem? Within ASALT, very specific PMs, we are looking to implement or apply the Army's ICAM portion in the tactical space, specifically detail environments, uh, and that will allow us to have a, a directory, a compute and store capability that provides a last known good, so we're not always pulling from cloud-type services. Uh, we will have a capability, an on-prem capability within a tactical formation, that allows us to pull services from ICAM that will authenticate and authorize uh, access to data applications. From a user perspective, we're also looking at soldier tokens, uh, more from a role-based access control versus an attribute-based. And that allows that token to be used by multiple soldiers within one platform for speed of access and decision-making versus relying on a single soldier with a single credential that may or not be with us throughout the entire fight. 
Uh, so we're doing role-based soldier tokens uh, that can be used expeditiously. You mentioned you all are working closely with PEO soldiers, so I don't know if this is something more in their world, but it's always of interest when people say, well, what will happen to the common access card? What will the future look like? It seems like this role-based uh, access token for the soldier will begin to replace that. Is Where are you at with that pilot? Is, is Are you able to offer any we're just the beginning stages. We've had some testing. Any updates you're able to give? Yeah, I think we're really in the beginning stages of just piloting with some formation, tactical formations. Uh, we're really trying to combine that effort uh, out of PO Soldier with POC3T's ICAM effort uh, so that they feed the same Army ICAM systems and they're compatible and interoperable. Uh, so really just the, a nascent effort to take an operational requirement to get away from CAT cards in a tactical space and use something that's more simpler and faster for soldiers in specific roles to use. So partnering soldier with C3T. I always have to ask the timeline question because this gets a, it's going to get a lot of excitement for people because while everyone loves to hate the common access cards, is this something you, in the because you're so early, would you, do you have hope that 24, 25, 26, you could actually roll it out much more broader, assuming obviously all the, the big assumptions we're going to make here, it works, it's affordable, it's, it's secure, all, all those important things? I think that's definitely a doable timeline. Right now, we have uh, username and password. So anything uh, better than that is definitely an improvement, definitely better security for the, the information, the data that uh, our soldiers need to access. Uh, we do have alternative multi-factor authentication means within those formations. But really the goal is to get to that token versus having CAT cards with credentials and they're individualized with attributes. So looking towards that soldier token is the future. I know there's going to be a lot of interest and in, we'll watch that closely, obviously, as it continues down the path. The last thing I just want to touch upon is you also mentioned this idea of uh, developing a test evaluation master plan starting summer 2024. Walk me through what that is, what that looks like, and why this matters to the, the bigger discussion here we're having around Zero Trust. The DOD's ZT strategy laid out very specific directives that the services have to achieve. Those are the 152 activities fully integrated. But those really, they're defined by a measure of performance. And what I mean by that is, did you accomplish this one activity? Yes. It really doesn't talk to the measure of effectiveness. Hey, did this achieve the desired zero trust outcome? So what the Army is going to do is we're going to do an end-to-end, -end, one through 152, internal Army analysis verification of our technology and our zero trust architecture that it can achieve the task that was directed, and then how do we validate the effectiveness. So we're going to lay that piece in. And then once we complete an internal Army assessment, we'll follow on with the red team, an external entity, doing the same thing in our environment when we don't know. And this idea is, does it work? Doesn't it? If it does, okay, now we can move on. Is this something that you'll do internally, meaning the Army will be the red teamers, you'll have Army red team, or will it be a contract? Do you know yet? Is it too early? No, I think it's fair to say that uh, the Army will do our internal assessments, but we will have external agency red teamers, uh, just to be very transparent, to ensure that we have the same look as another expert team. So definitely external. From a timing standpoint, again, uh, I know the Army and the rest of DOD is on a path to get to 2027, initial set of capabilities. I think you mentioned 45. Do you hope that you'll get this 
test and evaluation plan, you said starting summer 2024 and then really moving those blue and red teams in 2025 and beyond. What will what has to happen between now and then? Yeah, right now. So we have to continue to mature our architecture. We couldn't even do an internal assessment today uh, because there's a lot of specific capabilities that are not fully integrated. So you will not be able to get the desired effect. So once we get our foundational ICAM components in place, we have our foundational uh, endpoint security and compliance tool sets in place, uh, and we have the appropriate conditional data access controls for our data and applications. Uh, at that point, we're able to do end-to-end -end, uh, visibility and actually testing of those capabilities. Right now, the Army's architecture is not to a fully integrated point to do that. We need a little more time. Colonel Michael Smith is director of the Army's Functional Management Office for Zero Trust, and he's director of the Unified Network Task Force. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981 and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. 
okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Um, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice, you can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. 
And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith. And my belief in my prayer life, and I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.